Hi everyone and welcome to Elementary My Dear. I'm Emer McGuire and today's episode is all about meteorites. We hear from Element's expert Mike Sims and Irish astronaut hopeful Nora Patton. We also talk to Noel Connor, an artist who witnessed a Belfast meteorite back in 1969. This is a six-part series where we explore the wonders of some of the most fascinating elements in the periodic table. Elements are everywhere, and each week we discuss their importance in unusual places, from their contribution to the art world to the gold and mobile phones. And today's episode is all about meteorites. Coming up, I talk to Elements expert Mike Sims about all things meteorites. He tells me where to find them, and we discuss if we should be mining them for precious metals. Precious metals are... relatively more concentrated in some meteorites than they are in earth rocks at the surface, you see. I also talked to Dr Nora Patton, who hopes her meteoric rise in the space world will lead to her becoming Ireland's first astronaut. Can you imagine the impact that, you know, the first Irish person in space will have? It'll, It'll be huge. Finally, I chat with artist Noel Connor. Noel was just a 14-year-old boy when he saw a meteorite fly over his head in West Belfast in 1969. He tells me what that was like and how it influenced the rest of his life. It was extraordinary. When, when you talk about a meteorite passing over your head, I think it's better to talk in terms of a fireball. Let's start things off with Mike. So, Mike, today we're going to be talking all about meteorites. So, first of all, I want to talk a little about what makes meteorites so special. I know that they're coming from outer space, but are they really much different to the rocks that we have here on Earth? Well, uh, when you look at a lot of meteorites, no, they don't really look that that different. The ones, a few are made of iron, and so big chunks of iron are a bit different, perhaps. But most of them are just rocks. So they're made from the same minerals as we find on Earth. In fact, a much smaller variety of minerals. Um, but, but but no, they are different in some ways. And the main way that they're different is that on Earth, this is a very, very dynamic planet. Uh, you know, there's erosion and sedimentation and volcanism and earthquakes, things like that. And so we don't have many rocks that are very old on Earth because they've been re- recycled again and again and again. Whereas meteorites are mostly bits from the very early days of the solar system. So they've not changed for billions of years. So that's one of the ways in which they're a bit different from Earth rocks. Most of them are are much, much older without having been kind of changed much. And also there are subtle differences. There are processes that were going on in the very early solar system that are well, frankly, a bit bizarre. And so when you look at these meteorites and you understand what's been going on, you just think, oh, yes, these are quite different. But it, it's very subtle. The average average uh, Joe or Joanne public wouldn't really appreciate those subtleties. <laughs> and in fact, the average geologist wouldn't either. It's, uh, But they are they do tell a very exciting story once you unravel it. That's what I'm wondering you're saying about, you know, their properties are different. There's subtle little differences between them. So apart from kind of what's inside them and what they're made from, if I was to see a rock from outer space or a meteorite, would I just walk right past it? Would I even notice? You'd walk straight past it unless it had just landed about five minutes before. <laughs> um, or landed right in my head or something. I'd notice Yeah, yeah <laughs> Yes, yes. That, that would be, uh, be particularly exciting. Um <laughs> 
But uh, no, that, that's the problem, is that all of the meteorites that have ever been found in, in the island of Ireland have all been seen to fall. So somebody's actually seen these things come down, and, and they make quite a lot of noise when they're coming down, because they are, initially they're going really, really fast with sonic booms and such like. So people notice that. But once they've been lying on the ground or in a field for a few days, they just tend to look pretty much like another rock. So every single one that we have in Ireland has been seen to fall and then recovered you know, pretty quickly. Um, I know you're kind of talking about local meteorites that we've had. And back in 1969, we obviously had a little bit of space coming to Northern Ireland that year. So we had the Bovide Brisfield meteorite on the 25th of April. Um, was our was our meteorite related to the, the moon rocks or other meteorites around that time? Of course, 1969 was a great year for sort of space rocks because, of course, we got the moon rocks. Um, but the Bovide meteorite is a very, very different type of of a meteorite and it, it comes from uh, originally from a a small planet an asteroid that might have been two or three hundred kilometers uh, across and it's a relatively common type but the important thing about the Bavidi meteorite is that it, it showed features very very clearly that weren't seen in a lot of these other you know same common type of meteorite and they inspired a, a chap at Trinity College Dublin, Ian Sanders, to actually uh, look again at an old idea about how these things had actually formed in the early solar system. So although Bovidi itself is not an especially rare meteorite, it's, it's, it acts as a catalyst for, for changing the way meteorite people think about how these things formed. That's interesting you're saying about how people who study them have changed how they think about it and informed them a little bit. But... What about that year? You know, you said that was an interesting year for space, 1969. Obviously, we had the Apollo mission um, and moon rocks were brought back. Did that kind of start people's interest or excite people about moon rocks and about space travel? Did it change the way we look at space? Well, it certainly uh, inspired a lot of people, uh, you know, the moon landings. Um, it got scientists very, very excited. So for the first time, we would actually get rocks from the moon, which would tell us, something about how our nearest neighbor would actually form this there are lots and lots of sort of kind of theories as to where it had uh, uh, come from and we would finally get the evidence uh, and i think in those days uh it was certainly thought the only way we can get pieces off the moon and actually go there <laughs> and bring, bring them, them back. back you know which is actually fiendishly expensive um in fact the apollo missions you know, they ended up bringing back something like 380 kilograms of rock Wow. That's a lot. You know, that's that's exceeding your baggage limit <laughs> quite significantly. I'm sure when they lifted it in the moon, it didn't feel that weight. No, no, it was only a sixth of that, you see. So, yeah, <laughs> quite a bit. This is six, incredibly 60, light, 60, and then they lifted it kilograms. in Earth. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but once you get back. Um, and the Russians, actually, they had little, uh, they didn't go there in person, but they had little kind of machines that went there and recovered samples. And they, I think they brought back or sent back about half a kilogram. Mm hmm sort of a bit behind us but still we've got all these sort of samples which tell us a lot about uh you know the moon we since know of course that uh lots of moon rocks have come to earth for free you look at the moon and the moon is covered with impact craters it's been bashed to sort of uh for, for four and a half billion years it's been sort of battered about by lumps of rock hitting it. If a really big lump of rock hits the moon, uh, going at high speed, are these things going fast, 30,000, 40,000 miles an hour, and it can fling bits of rock into space, and some of those can escape from uh, moon's gravity, 
And if we're lucky, some of them actually get caught by earth scrapes and they fall as meteorites. And there's probably 350, 400 kilograms of lunar meteorites that are now known on Earth. But the first one of those wasn't actually uh, spotted, recognised till about 1980, 81. Um, so we've already gone and got all our rocks. We stopped going to the moon for a decade before we realised, oh, Oh, there are already rocks here. <laughs> so, We're able to get them on Earth ourselves. Yeah. What about moon rocks? Do you know? Do people collect them? Or are they something that's expensive? Because I'm just imagining now. You know, I'm walking around in Belfast. Maybe there's loads of moon rocks just lying around for free that I could harvest. Well, the problem. Well, the, the problem with moon rocks is that, as you were saying, that uh, kind of ordinary meteorites, you and most geologists will just walk past and go, yeah, the common type meteorites. Lunar meteorites are very, very rare. You're talking about a fraction of 1%, you know, 0.1% of meteorites are these lunar meteorites. And they do look quite like some of the Earth rocks, you see. So they are even more difficult to distinguish. And all of the lunar meteorites that have been found have been found in the dry deserts of uh, northern Africa and the Middle East uh, and Antarctica, uh, as a lot of them come from Antarctica, one in Australia. None from the Americas, none from Europe. They're almost certainly here, um, but well, they just look like any old rock, unfortunately. But there, there are people that do collect these things because we've got a lot of lunar meteorites and they can be sold and, and traded in a way that the Apollo moon rocks can't be. They belong to NASA. Mm -hmm. NASA might lend them out. And so, yeah, people do collect lunar meteorites. I know you said there that it's been found kind of in, in deserts in Africa, but you also said that they found some meteorites in Antarctica. Um, is that just because the meteorites are dark in colour and Antarctica is so white and they're easy to spot? Yeah, that is a, that's one of the great things about meteorites is they come down through the atmosphere, it gets the air around them, gets quite hot, they get a bit burnt on the outside. And yeah, they land in Antarctica and Antarctica is beautifully white, so you think, yes, they stick out like a sore thumb. But there's a bit of a problem. It also snows in Antarctica, so that meteorite... <laughs> Meteorites don't land very often. It's about uh -huh. one sort of golf ball-sized meteorite per square kilometre per 10,000 years. That's not very often. Wow. It's very, very rare thing, you know, for these... So they really are rare. And they land in Antarctica, and then it gets buried by the next snowfall. And so you think, well, how are we going to find those? Yet there are strange places in Antarctica where the ice kind of moves around, and there are buried... Uh, mountain ranges in Antarctica and sometimes the ice is kind of moving along the, the ice can't go under the mountain range and it can't go around the mountain range it can't go over it and what happens is that it is it is it kind of rises pushed to the surface the ice it doesn't melt it sublimates it goes straight from being a solid to being a sort of vapor and any meteorite that's buried in that huge volume of ice ends up being caught it just stays there it's like a conveyor belt delivering this incredibly widely scattered cargo of meteorites within this huge volume of ice delivering it to this spot and they're called blue ice fields and so the um various of the uh, meteorite collecting teams from uh usa particularly in japan and china now as well and the uk go out there and they look for these blue ice fields and they collect all these kind of meteorites and we now understand that mechanism with this conveyor belt delivering them rather conveniently. So you have a little skidoo, and you, oh, there's one there, oh, there's another one there. And they put flags in, and then they go and they, they collect them very, very carefully so not to contaminate them. We understand the mechanism, but if you go back 50 years to 1969, we have no idea about that. 
And that's why 1969 was a fantastic year because that's when the first significant Antarctic meteorite discovery was made. And this was a Japanese expedition, uh, and they were glaciologists, I believe, and they were, went there and they found nine meteorites. Now, the thing is, if you went to, say, somewhere like Chelyabinsk in Russia, which was famous for the big meteorite that fell in, in 2013, you could find nine meteorites, probably without too much difficulty, but they'll all be the same meteorite because they're all part of the same thing. So if you find nine meteorites in a fairly limited area of Antarctica, the assumption is, oh, they're all going to be part of a bigger meteorite that's broken up as it's come in to, to hit the ground. But when they analysed these, they found all nine of them were quite different. And that immediately, oh my goodness, yeah, this is something very, very unusual. You would not expect that. Uh, and it's quite quickly realised there's some mechanism going on that is concentrating these, and so expeditions were mounted. Uh, and now we know why it is, and it's quite carefully coordinated. And, and there's 40,000 or more meteorites have come from... Wow. Lots of, lots of the common ones, of course. Uh, quite a lot of lunar meteorites, Martian meteorites, some other strange types. What a find, though, you know, to, to figure out, actually, if we just are able to find these, as you say, huge conveyor belts instead of yeah. digging through the masses and masses of snow in Antarctica. Um, it's kind of a much quicker solution. Also, the thing is that, that Antarctica is very, very dry, and meteorites, mm -hmm. most meteorites actually contain a little bit of iron metal, and that means that in our slightly damp climate, they don't last very long because the, the metal's going to rust and it's going to kind of break them up. But Antarctica is very, very dry, so that helps as well. So they last a lot longer, so they can last hundreds of thousands of years stuck in that deep freeze and then they're delivered. So it's a fantastic mechanism. You've said there about um, some of them having, having iron in them, but it's also been suggested that we could mine asteroids for precious metals. Is that is that something that's possible or is it something that is even economical? In theory, it's possible. And they'll say, oh, well, technology, you know, we got to the moon 50 years ago, which is still amazing looking at mm -hmm. the technology, you know, that we got there. Even so the these... grainy videos, it's oh, unbelievable to think that yes, people were there. Yes, that's why a lot of people think, oh, it didn't happen, but it, it did. Um <laughs> So, yeah, technology has advanced so much we could do it. The cost of getting anything out of Earth's gravity is so expensive. And the returns on this, you know, if it was a, an asteroid several kilometres across made of gold or, or mm -hmm. iridium or something like that, then, yes, it might be worth it. But the, the kind of precious metals are... Relative, relatively more concentrated in some meteorites than they are in earth rocks at the surface, you see. So you could think it might be worth doing. But just the costs, I just don't see it. Would it outweigh what you would actually get back from the majority of asteroids? I think it would. It'd be much, much more profitable to, to kind of mine redundant mobile phones because they're <laughs> full of all these elements that you want and they're... Mobile phones are a much richer source of gold than, than most of the ores in gold mines. So that's what we want to do. Recycling is the answer rather than going out there. It's a thing that, oh, we could make a fortune from mining asteroids, but it's really, really expensive to get anything up there. So instead of going all the way to Antarctica looking for asteroids and meteorites to, to mine, just bring you some mobile phones and you'll be yeah, worth yeah. a fortune. <laughs> People seem to get new one every year. Not me.
1969 was a great year, obviously for space travel, but also for space rocks. Do you want to tell us about some of the other space rocks around that time? Yes. Um, yeah, meteorites kind of fall from time to time, but there were two in that year, other than Bavidi, which was a fantastic <laughs> local one. Um, and there was one that fell in uh, in February 1969, fell in a place called Allende in Chihuahua in Mexico, you see. And it was it was quite a rare type of meteorite um, that until that point only a kind of few dozen kilograms were known. And then suddenly two tons of this stuff falls out of the sky. And it was immediately recognized as a rare type. And the thing was that there was a laboratory waiting to analyze space rocks. Because of course NASA had set up this rock laboratory to analyze the moon rocks. And then all of a sudden, this amazing meteorite falls out of the sky. Oh, we'll have some of that. And it was whisked off. And so it was like a a test run for the laboratory so not only did it help them to kind of uh calibrate all sorts of things in the laboratory but also we had a huge amount of information came out of this ind meteorite you see and it's the most studied meteorite of any you know it's still studied today um and the important the really really important thing that came out of it is the age of the solar system there are little squiggly pale bits in it um that they're the very first solid material in the solar system. And amazingly, you can actually get a radiometric date from these things. This is due to the kind of radioactive decay of, uh, of elements. And that gives us an age for the solar system of 4,567 million years. And there's a great number, 4567. <laughs> That's what is generally defined as the age of the solar system. Not 4566 or 4568, but 4567. So that was the first one. That was February 1969. And then in September 1969, in a place called Murchison in, in Australia, Victoria, Australia, another meteorite fell. It was, it was again, it was an even rarer type, very, very light and crumbly. So it doesn't survive coming through the atmosphere. And about 100 kilograms of this thing kind of landed in the town of Murchison. People went out and they collected bits of it, you see. They, some people just put it in jam jars. And such like and years later a meteorite dealer famous meteorite dealer called bob hogg he went round knocking on people's doors have you got any pieces of the meteorite and they said, oh yes yes we've got some and they some of the people would have had this meteorite in the jam jar for 20 years or so and apparently when he took the the, the lid off there was this waft of sort of sort of organic sort of mm -hmm. smell and that was the the important thing about the merchant meteorite which was actually analyzed again back in 1969 it's full of amino acids 60 wow. or 70 amino acids. Now, the thing is, you think, oh, my goodness, life in outer space. Mm -hmm. Quite clearly, these are not uh, evidence of life, but it's showing that amino acids can actually be created in space. And if you've got certain types of meteorites full of amino acids, and think of the early solar system, the early Earth being bombarded with all these things, and so the ocean's just going to end up being awash with amino acids. So it's got the building blocks of life delivered by meteorite. So those were two really, really exciting meteorites that kind of changed our thinking about rocks from space. You're listening to Elementary, My Dear, with Emer Maguire. Next up, I'm going to have a chat with someone who is hoping to go where the meteorites come from. Dr. Nora Patton wants to be the first Irish person in space. She's dreamt of becoming an astronaut ever since she visited NASA as a child. And with a background in aeronautical engineering and recent intensive training as part of the Possum program at NASA, Nora is said to be a space star. 
How are you, Nora? Grace, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. I'm looking forward to hearing all about your uh, space adventures. Before we kind of jump into your career to date and the projects you've been involved with, do you want to just tell us what first sparked your interest in space? Yeah, sure. So I suppose I go back a good number of years ago at this stage, but when I was 11, I got to visit NASA in Cleveland, Ohio. And how that came about was that my dad's uh, family, uh, a lot of them moved to uh, Ohio um, so my dad's father was the only one to stay in Ireland so I actually have a huge amount of um, cousins and relations in Cleveland and when I was 11 we were going to visit them um, and we got to do all the tourist things and part of that was to go and visit NASA and I just thought it was amazing to have that exposure I think you know at that age I was still in national school in the west of Ireland um, so that absolutely sparked an interest I suppose in space and aviation and exploration. And it's obviously something that really stuck with you. Has that kind of changed your path of your life and your career to date? Yeah, totally. So I, I often say to kids, I think I was very lucky because I, you know, that visit when I was 11 sparked the interest. But when I was a teenager, I got to go back to NASA uh, a couple of times. And I think that was really important because you know, often you have an interest in national school or when you're young and for whatever reasons, you lose that interest. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that was really important. I got to go back to, to Cleveland and visit the NASA there. And when I was 15, I went to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. And I think that was the time I said, I really want to do engineering. Like I want to know how these things fly and operate. Um, so I was really lucky in that sense that you know that that interest grew as I went back and as I learned more about space and um, rather than getting knocked out of me as a teenager which often happens you know <laughs> with different things yeah obviously you had the opportunity to go back and that's fantastic and what about the Kennedy Center how was that because people who've been to visit that just say sometimes you know it's just changed their life oh it was unreal yeah I, I mean like they have the Saturn V mm -hmm. in the visitor complex yeah. and the sheer scale of it, you think this is insane you know this is <laughs> they this is, you know stacked rocket brought humans to the moon it was amazing like you just it, it's it was a total eye opener because you know you think there wasn't a whole lot of space in Ireland even mm -hmm. at the time so in having seen and experienced that it was just just incredible yeah so uh, it, it totally did shape my own career path because space has always been my thing since I was very young and you said there you know obviously you knew then that you wanted to be an engineer and getting to Cleveland and getting to the Kennedy Centre kind of solidified that for you in your head so what was your educational background mm. to get get you to where you are today? I spent a lot of time looking at different degrees, different undergraduate degree courses that I could study uh, in university. Um, and I think part of what shaped it was that I was looking at the astronauts who had flown to space and yeah. what had they studied, you know, and how had they managed to progress their career in that way. And a lot of them would have studied aerospace or aeronautical uh, engineering. When I started looking at what they actually do in that course, I thought this is so cool. Like I want to know um, how things fly. So 
I went to the University of Limerick and studied aeronautical um, engineering and then continued my studies there and did my PhD. So, uh, but I was always on the lookout, I suppose, for space related, you know, programs, activities, Mm -hmm. courses, that kind of thing. Um, And I did a a summer school in 2008 uh, in uh, Austria, which was in partnership with the European Space Agency. And then in 2010, I went to the International Space University. So it was always kind of this, I suppose, progression of, well, how can I stay and get more involved in the whole space world? It's as if you're making decisions to constantly get you closer and closer to that goal of being involved in space, which is amazing. Totally, yeah. But I think it's it's like anything. It's like, you know, when you have a real love of something, mm-hmm. you want to know more about it. So by going to the courses and programs, you meet like-minded people yeah. and you learn. So it's, you know, you want to do that. We've obviously been involved in programs and projects in the International mm. Space University and things. You had previous involvement with the project The Only Way Is Up, uh, which is particularly <laughs> cool. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? I suppose the seed of that probably sat in my head when I was in Austria at the International Space University in 2011. And I had met... Um, the founder of a company called Nanorax and they have commercial access on the International Space Station and I just thought this was so cool you know the opportunity to actually send experiments and have them uh, activated and interacted with by astronauts on board Um, and then in 2012 the Space Studies Programme was in Florida and um, there I learned about other countries that had sent student payloads uh, via nanoracks to the space station and I was like wow that'd be so cool to do something like that in Ireland so it was kind of you know I had no idea how I was going to pull it off but <laughs> um in 2013, anyway, I uh, rallied around and I got funding from various different sources and we announced a project uh, for Irish students uh, to design an experiment that would actually be sent to, to, to the space station. So it eventually, uh, you know, we had a comp- national competition, picked a winner and then it flew um it flew on the Orb 2 mission in July of 2014 and flew back down then 10 weeks later on a SpaceX rocket. Um, so I just thought, how cool, like commercial space, this is it, you know, our little Irish payload <laughs> <laughs> going up in a in an Orb, on the Orb 2 mission and then coming back down on the SpaceX mission. I think the whole evolution of commercial space has opened up unbelievable opportunities for people uh, that were simply not there 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And and the fact that kind of you're recognising that commercial space is maybe the way for us to get Irish people or Absolutely. you know, space programs associated with Ireland Absolutely. in the space is fantastic. Yeah. So in 2017 you were involved in Project Possum. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what the project is? Yeah, sure. So um I suppose I like seeing as space has been my thing for so long. <laughs> um I knew I had done like the academic, the study side of things. Um, but you obviously need to do hands on like physical stuff <laughs> <laughs> if you want to be realistic yeah. and get into space. So uh, the opportunity to go um, and take part in Project Possum came up in 2017. Um, Possum stands for Polar Suborbital Science in the Upper Mesosphere. Uh, it's a citizen science program and it's 
very international, very diverse. And essentially, they are teaching us skills needed to fly as scientists on the next range of commercial uh, space vehicles. So you were one of 12 people in 2017 who were chosen to go on Project Possum. Um, what was that selection process and, and how did you end up as one of those people? Yeah, so uh, you apply online. So you have to put in an application uh, form, fill in all your details, your educational background you know your interests all of that kind of thing um, and they have 12 spots um, and I got to go in October 2017 as one of those 12 and it was just it was amazing it was absolutely brilliant and it was a lovely group we still have our WhatsApp group so we keep in touch <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of people listening now who are like I'm just going to Google this uh, yeah. apply here. so <laughs> how intense was it you know was there prep for it or did you just turn up and do you know a few days training what was the setup yeah so I think importantly with it there's uh preparation in advance of actually going uh, so I think that was really important because um, you're not just rocking up to something and then spending the five days you know there doing your thing there was a lot of preparation in advance a lot of reading assignments um, weekly um, uh, teleconferences where we dial in and we go through lectures and that um, so that was really good because then by the time you get by the time you go um, you're more familiar with what you're going to do you've done kind of the basic academic side um, and then when we were there there was classroom work and um, a small exam and things like that um, but over the course of the five days it was very physically intensive we were doing a lot of hands-on um you know physical stuff uh we got to wear an iva uh spacesuit so that's a spacesuit that's been you wear inside the spacecraft and um, it's a nasa funded commercial suit so they're working in partnership with the commercial company who's making this suit uh, called final frontier design um and that's a really great thing because it's because space has gone commercial, I mean, who would have thought you'd have an opportunity to wear and test mm. a spacesuit that's actually NASA funded? Um, those kinds of opportunity, I think, is where citizen science and the whole world of commercial space has opened up doors, um, you know, for me as an Irish person and other people. Um, and other things that we did uh, in 2017 were high G flights, uh, which were super cool. <laughs> it's the bit that just seems the coolest out of everything. Do you want to tell people who are listening who don't actually know what high G flights are, what they are and, you know, how you felt whenever you were doing that? So we did, it's essentially an acrobatic flight. Uh, you sit in, there's one pilot, one passenger and um, the the pilot can manoeuvre the plane in a certain way so that you actually feel different levels of force. So right now we're under 1G and so, you know, if you go 0G, you're floating weightless. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you go the other way, 2G, 3G, 4G, you're actually feeling that force that's on your body. And I kind of say to people, it's, you know, if you've ever been on a roller coaster mm. and the roller coaster takes off all of a sudden and you're shoved back into the seat. Like it's the same kind of sensation. And when we did the 4G flight, it's essentially to simulate what you would experience during a rocket launch, you know, suborbital rocket launch. And um, like I could absolutely feel it in my face I could feel my the skin of my face being pushed back I could wow. feel the blood being pushed down to the backs of my legs and um, so you can you can really feel that force when it's on you 
That is unbelievable. You obviously must be very brave to kind of do that because even as soon as you said acrobatic flight, I was sticking in my head and I would be absolutely terrified. Oh, would you? <laughs> I oh. think so. I think a lot of people would, but obviously if you're so driven to become an astronaut and obviously with your background as an aeronautical engineer, you know how everything works. Do you find that your drive has made you more brave about getting involved with space? Maybe. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Like, I think the thing is, like, I'm not fearless. I've, I've often been asked, are you fearless? But no, I'm absolutely not. It's not <laughs> It's not that I'm fearless. But I think we all have limits. We all have, yeah. ba- maybe not limits, but we all have boundaries. And I think it's a case of pushing those boundaries in a safe environment that, you you know, you learn kind of how to deal with different scenarios and that um, I think the more I've gone up in light aircraft the more comfortable I've been yeah. um, so I, I remember my first time in light aircraft was back in 2006 and I was much more nervous because mm. it's like you do, you haven't experienced that before you know so I think the more you you do something the more familiar and the more comfortable yeah. you get with it by the time you get to space it'll be a piece of <laughs> like, I hope so, so easy <laughs> Um, so you've obviously talked about there about the the flights and everything and putting mm. on the spacesuit, which I'm sure was just an unbelievable experience. Do you have any real standout highlight from the mm. those days of training that you did? Oh, it's so hard to pick one. <laughs> <laughs> you tell us about lots of highlights if you like. Cause I'm sure there are plenty. I sometimes feel every time I go back to Possum, I'm like, that was my favorite. That was my favorite. No, that was my favorite. <laughs> um, oh. It's really hard to pick. I loved that program we did in in October 2017. That was my introduction to Possum, you know, mm-hmm. high G flights, hypoxia training, yeah. um, spacesuit testing. Um, um, but last October we did the uh, parabolic flights. So the microgravity flights in Canada with the National Research Council. Mm-hmm. And I think that was just... It was just incredible, you think. Amazing to see what happens when you take gravity away. Like everything behaves differently. So I think that's definitely been one of my highlights, you know, to sit on one of these as Mm -hmm. a, a researcher and do useful work and see how things operate when you take gravity away was pretty pretty amazing I'm sure that's just so surreal as well it is I kind of look back at the, the images so like the video footage yeah. of it and I'm like I want to go back <laughs> <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds very very amazing and I think um, when we think about people in space we think about astronauts we think you know they're such you know scientific heroes or engineering heroes but what about that training was there anything that was a particular struggle for mm. you or for the rest of the team yeah I, th- I probably I would say the dunker training that we did in April of last year that absolutely pushed our boundaries you're simulating what it's like to crash land Mm -hmm. in a helicopter in water Uh, so it's aviation survival training but yeah that absolutely would have been the one that I would say I felt really proud of myself uh, having come out after it because you're literally strapped into the mm-hmm. seat, a five-point harness, quick-release harness. You sit in this simulator of a helicopter. It's it's like sitting in a helicopter because they have the windows and the doors and everything mm-hmm. and the seat's organised to oh, be... So it's so real. It's, it's very real. real, yeah, absolutely. And they can change the orientation of the seats mm-hmm. to model different helicopters and that. Um, and like you're literally strapped 
strapped in uh, they bring it up above the water and then over the loudspeaker you hear uh, mayday mayday ditching 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 and the next thing you hear it and you know you're going under and you can feel the water moving from your feet up to your up your legs and then the next thing it's coming up your torso and you know you have to take it's on breath hold so you take a breath of water before you're submerged and it flips over Um, but I think you know you as a person you have to stay calm Mm -hmm. and it's amazing too if you think about it when you're underwater your sense of sight is gone your hearing is no good to you Um, smell no good to you so you're solely relying on your touch on your feel of the seats of the cabin layout to get out so you have to if you lose your orientation if you lose your Mm -hmm. sense of touch uh, you're totally disorientated. So it was actually a really amazing experience to kind of understand how your senses work in different environments as well. I think even trying to keep calm in that scenario, because if you're in space and you're coming down, that's exactly what could happen. Exactly, um, yeah. So that's probably that's probably a big feature, personality feature. If you're going to be an astronaut, you need to be calm because I'm pretty sure you want to be sitting next to someone on a rocket who is. Absolutely, <laughs> that's the thing. Yeah, I, I we we said that when we were doing it, we were kind of like, golly, if this is what the you know, and it's done in a very safe environment, mm-hmm. like this divers under the water with you. Um, and we were kind of saying that, like, you know, people have this very romantic opinion of space mm-hmm. and space flight, um, but it is so not <laughs> romantic and <laughs> lovely. You know, you're in a small little uh, container going mm-hmm. to space. You do not want to be in that with somebody who's going to panic or freak out um, because it's a very closed environment that you're in in that spacecraft. Um, so, yeah, I think it was a big, a big learning curve and a big push of our own uh, boundaries on you know what we could achieve I think you know there was was definitely an enormous sense of we were very happy with ourselves that we had Mm -hmm. completed that training so you as an engineer you were on the scientist astronaut branch of the program what kind of research do you think Mm. is likely going to be important in the next generation of space exploration it's a great question it's a hard one in a lot of ways to to answer because um, I don't know what the statistic is but they say like in 20 years time like those a lot of those jobs won't even they're not even around now mm-hmm. so they're it's this evolution of you know technology research innovation is really pushing things in ways that we don't even know what's going to be there yeah. in 20 years time but I definitely think you know we can learn from what we've done right and what we could be doing better on Earth and look as we go further, you know, to the moon and to Mars and further afield and what do we need to do differently or better as we explore. So, like, I just think the ISS, like the space station, is such an amazing platform Mm -hmm. for research, you know, every single day they're doing different types of research to know and understand better what's happening in terms of you know, drug discovery, fluid mechanics, materials, fire, all of those things. So it's hard to pinpoint one thing. I think there's lots of things, Mm -hmm. but I think it's a really amazing platform what we have in space at the moment. And I think that'll constantly evolve in terms of what, what we'll be looking at. 
So now that you have kind of you've completed your you've done the passing program, you've got this perfect background for space travel, and you've obviously got the passion and everything to go to space. Does that all mean now that you're eligible to fly to space? <laughs> um, so what the pro so Project Possum is a it's citizen science based, and uh, basically what we're what we're planning to do is get a commercial suborbital space flight. So the likes of Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic. Mm-hmm. Um, so those companies are making really good progress and paving. You know they're really making good progress over the last you know two three years um so yeah so my my plan is hopefully in the next five years to actually secure a seat uh, on one of these um hopefully through project possum and actually fly as a researcher on one of them so do you think it's not really a matter of oh if i go to space do you just think it's a timing it's more when you go to space yeah i say that to people now like genuinely if you had asked me five years ago i would have said no it wouldn't I I wouldn't have seen a possibility but now I say to people it is a case of when it's not a case of if because these companies are 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 doing it you know uh, Virgin Galactic have flown to space more than once now since uh, December um, and Blue Origin are racing ahead they have mm-hmm. science payloads being sent on suborbital flights you know every couple of months so it's really I see it as a case of when uh, as opposed to if at this stage that's amazing. And do you feel like you're ready to go? Do you feel like you're ready to take on that adventure? I do. <laughs> um, it would be amazing. It would be, it would be amazing. It would be unbelievable. What's your kind of overarching dream here? Mm. Is it is it to get to space, be the first Irish person in space? Is it to become an astronaut, to go to the International Space Station? What is it? Mm. Oh, it can be all of the above. <laughs> I think it is all of the above, to be honest. The thing is, like, space for me has been my thing for so long. Like, and, and I really, what I've really felt over the past two years, probably the past year and a half, getting to space for me has become so much more about just me now. Mm. I think it's about everybody else. It's about all of those people that have supported me, all of the little kids that write me letters and draw themselves and me in this rocket going to space and they say, I want to be an engineer or a scientist or astronaut when I grow up. And can you imagine the impact that, you know, the first Irish person in space will have? It'll it'll be huge. Um, so I would absolutely love to make that happen. I'll do everything I can. Um, but even if I'm not the first, uh, I'll still continue to make that happen because it's been something that I've wanted to achieve for so long. Um, I I have to do this for myself and my own ambitions um, because you have to kind of be the driver, I think, mm-hmm. of it. Uh, but I, I think it has evolved to become something so much bigger um, than I ever could have planned for. That's amazing. I think we're going to keep an eye on your your journey in this space. Do you want to tell people where they can follow you online and things so yeah, other people can keep up to date with your journey? Absolutely. Um, it's all on my social media, so I'm at Space Nora. So Nora, you have a book coming out that is going to help inspire young people to follow their dreams. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, yeah, so I have a book coming out with O'Brien Press. Um, I'm super excited about it. It's a, an illustrated children's book um, basically about my whole journey from that 11-year-old growing up in Mayo um, to how I progressed to 
towards space <laughs> and some fun facts about space and astronauts and um, space flight uh, of you know what I've learned over the years so thank you to engineer and future astronaut Nora Patton for coming and having a chat with us today thank you so much Nora uh, thanks a million it was lovely talking to you the book Shooting for the Stars by Dr Nora Patton is out now it's really fascinating talking to someone whose lifelong passion for space was ignited as a child and our next guest also had a brief encounter with space at a young age that happened to influence his career later in life. Artist Noel Connor is from Belfast, and Noel was just a 14-year-old boy playing football on the streets of West Belfast back in 1969 when he witnessed a meteorite soar across the city skies just above his head. So Noel, thank you for joining us. No problem. So I just want to have a chat with you as someone who obviously has the memory of the Bovide meteorite, but also as someone whose later life and work has been influenced by that experience. So just so people can have an idea of what it was like, could you tell us that night in 1969 what your experience was of witnessing the meteorite? It was 1969 and within a few months, you know, all hell let loose in, in Northern Ireland, so it wasn't a very significant thing. But uh, for me, it always lingered. It always lingered because it, it, it was extraordinary. When, when you talk about a meteorite passing over your head, I think it's better to talk in terms of a fireball because it, it was an absolute fireball streaking across the skies of West Belfast. And if you know West Belfast at all, you know that Divis Mountain or the Black Mountain is just behind the, the housing estate up there. And it was an, that's a sort of black silhouette. We could see it disappear across the sky and over the top of that. And uh, I remember it very significantly because we played football at the bottom of our street on a, a place called Coram Ring. And it was a, a, a roundabout where four just terrace streets converged. But we played football on it so often. It was just a, a circle of flattened mud. And that's where we gathered every night. And we played basically football until it got dark. So I'm told it was sort of the perfect time to see that sort of event because it was just dusk, just getting dark. So you could see the thing in the sky, but it still lit up the sky as it went across. And uh, again, at the time, it, it broke the sound barrier coming in. You know, a couple of uh, serious explosions coming in. So uh, it, we just all stood totally amazed, looking up. I've got a very strong image of us all just looking up, wondering what the hell was going on. We had no sense of what it was, a meteorite or a fireball or whatever. It was just some sort of extraordinary event. Obviously, you've mentioned there that this meteorite broke the sound barrier. I know there's a wonderful story of a lady at the time who happened to catch the sound of the meteorite on tape, and I think she was the first person ever to do so. Were you aware of that at the time? I wasn't aware at the time, but as I... You know, I got obviously involved in art and design and uh, went off to England to train and do fine art. And all the time, so this lingering memory was with me. And I, I did my research and research and tried to find, you know, had this thing really happened? And at one point, I got through to then di director of the Armagh Planetarium, uh, Dr. Tom Mason. And he was really helpful. He reassured me totally. No, no, this really happened. And he, he told me what it was called and how it happened. And then unbelievably said, do you want to come over and see the meteorite? Because he had it at the Omaha Planetarium. And uh, 
within days I was over there and the, the incredible thrill of actually holding this thing in my hands. You know, it's older, it was older than the earth. It was over 4 billion years old uh, and traveled millions of miles across the universe, across my 14-year-old head. And there was me all these years later standing holding this thing. And uh, he said, uh, when you get home, there'll be a wee present waiting for you. And I hadn't a clue what he was talking about. So a few days later, a, a wee padded envelope came through the door and it was an old cassette tip. And I put this in and that's what it turned out to be. It turned out to be the recording that this uh, lady, Eileen Brown, who worked at the Belfast Telephone Exchange in Belfast, she lived in Bangor and her hobby was recording birdsong. So she was out in her back garden recording birdsong. When the meteorite, you can hear it come across the sky and break the sound barrier above her head as uh, as it goes. So it genuinely, creatively, I've never been so thrilled in my life as when I heard that that recording. It's unbelievable to think that that lady was just out in her garden and accidentally became the first person ever to record the sound of a meteorite. Like, what a lucky accident. If I was her, I would have been absolutely buzzing. Now, talking about this specific meteorite, I know part of it broke off over Lisburn and it burnt through a roof in Sprucefield, but a big chunk also landed in Bavidi in a farm. And I heard the farmer who lived there at the time said the meteorite flew right over his head and he said it was absolutely huge. And he was describing it as two and a half times the size of the moon as you see it in the sky. Whereas I always imagined it being more like a distant shooting star. So whenever you spotted this meteorite in Belfast, Noel, was it close to your head or what was the proximity like? No, genuinely nothing like that at all. <clears throat> it really was just above our heads. Uh, as I say, very much a fireball lighting up the whole sky. And I suppose in those terms, Bovidi isn't that far from West Belfast. It was definitely on its way down. And that was sort of, if you like, exaggerated by the black silhouette of the, the mountain behind the, the, uh, the, the estate. But you're saying uh, it, it did break up <clears throat> over Sprucefield. And I, I think I'm pretty certain that uh, the Ulster Museum have got what they call the Sprucefield Fragment, which in my head almost became mystical, like the Dead Sea Scrolls of Turin Surround, the Spruce, Sprucefield Fragment there in the museum. So, uh, as you say, it did go through the roof of a, an OUC depot and damage a desk, which was, uh, yeah... I think there's photographs of that at the, uh, the the planetarium. And I'm sure maybe at the time they didn't think it was a meteorite at all. At the time, 1969 in April, was this something that people the next day were talking about? I know you say the memory, you thought it was a false memory for years, but was there any kind of buzz about it at the time? I had no sense of that at all. To be honest, as a 14-year-old on the streets of West Belfast, I spent most of the time on the streets. So I wouldn't have heard this sort of conversation going on. But I didn't want to get into the house. Nobody was aware of it. Nobody was paying it any attention. So uh, it, it really genuinely for us had no significance. I know at the time, having done my research, uh, Concord was doing test flights over Northern Ireland. And there were complaints about it breaking the sound barrier. And some people may have construed the, the, uh, the uh, explosions as that. Also... Uh, again, if you know West Belfast, there was quarries up behind the Black Mountain there. So we, we were quite used to hearing explosions when they were setting off uh, charges up in the quarry. But uh, the, the sound really wasn't the issue. It was the, this extraordinary 
it was actually beautiful. There's no doubt about it. It was a beautiful thing going across our heads. But, uh, you know, we were kids who had no idea. I'd never heard of a meteorite or a comet or no idea what I was looking at. And I think it was kind of just minutes later that it landed on the farm. So it's unbelievable that you were part of that experience. You know, something coming from outer space right over your head in West Belfast and landing in Bovidi in a farm. I, that's something that I would absolutely love to have seen and experienced. Well, I know at the time, as a 14-year-old, I was getting interested in art. I had a bit of talent for art school. And around that time, I'd been down... Uh, to what was called the Belfast Educational Supply Store in Fountain Lane. And I remember buying my first set tin of uh, Reeves paints. And coming from a large family, the only place I could have kept those things was on the windowsill, the back windowsill in the house. So I know for a fact that that meteorite, as it went past the house and lit up the window, would have lit up that set of paints. Now that's become uh, a starting point for a whole series of works for me of, uh, you know, that sort of, that innocence. It, it, it definitely was that. It, there was a sense of it was the end of innocence for a 14-year-old. And uh, as part of that, you know, I'm working with that set of paints and the, if you like, the, the lighting of the fuse of some talent, as it were. But I also wanted to find my 14-year-old voice. And uh, I took great delight in discovering that there was a young lad who won the uh, competition for reading poetry, Poetry Aloud, national competition in Ireland. And uh, so he, he was regarded as the best reader of poetry in Ireland. And it transpired he was from my local school. He was in the school I went to. So uh, in him, I found the voice of the, the kid who the meteorite crossed over that night. So a lot of my work, this exhibition, which I, I had this year in Armagh at the Planetarium and the uh, the Art Centre there, he became the voice. So I was able to write for him. And uh, that was an experience. That was an incredible experience. So this is your Bovidi Illuminations exhibition. And you've obviously been heavily influenced by that experience that you had, as you say, as a 14-year-old boy. What does that artwork or that body of work look like? I'm really grateful to the Planetarium and uh, the staff there and, and Professor Michael Burton, who gave me access to the actual meteorite. And I was able to go there and at times set up a studio and work with the, the actual object uh, with the view to making uh, a 20 minute film, which would be shown on the 50th anniversary of the, of the, uh, the meteorite coming down. So we showed that in the Dome Theatre, we projected it up into the, the dome theatre, into the sky. And uh, by some other extraordinary coincidence, there's been so many creative coincidences in this, in this work that by another coincidence, I had uh, been given years ago the school register from my class at LaSalle School in Belfast. And when I looked through the register, it actually had the day that the meteorite came down recorded. So there was all the teachers, little marks, little ticks against all the names in the class. So I took that register and had it re-photographed. I, I photographed it through a microscope and enlarged those little individual pen marks, those little crosses, and then set up a dark room, a studio in the planetarium and projected 
those little marks onto the actual meteorite. So it's as if it's coming through space with these projections of uh, the attendance marks from the register, proving the sort of our presence on that day as the thing came towards us over our heads. So uh, uh, as a poet as well, I'm involved in poetry as well as visual arts. The film gave me a fantastic opportunity to combine all those things. So it was the first time ever really I was able to have sound, music, spoken word, visuals. So uh, it, it was a, a really exciting opportunity. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget the, uh, the showing at the Planetarium on the 50th anniversary. I mean, what gave me real pleasure in that lovely dome theatre? Uh, there were so many family and friends there. Indeed, there were some uh, blokes who'd been playing football with me on that night in Crom Ring. But what was of uh, great significance? All the family who no longer live in Northern Ireland, family in America, in Scotland, England and Australia. I'd sent them copies and links to the film and told them precisely when it would be shown in Armagh. So I was able to tell the assembled audience and family and friends that the rest of the family, the wider family across Australia, America, England, Scotland, were watching at the same time, which uh, I think I, I found of significance and quite moving to be able to do that. And what a setting for that. You know, that just sounds like such a lovely thing to be part of. I think that's that's a beautiful way to look at it and even how you're describing it. All those years ago, 1969, that meteorite coming down just over your head when you were out playing with your friends on the street at 14 and then kind of a couple of months later, as you say, you know, family changed, the whole country changed and then you probably very, very quickly had to grow up. It's probably, that meteorite's probably really good imagery for then what went on to happen. But that is uh, an absolutely fantastic contribution and really fascinating. Also, thank you so much for talking to us. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you to all of today's guests. It's crazy to think that the first known sound recording of a meteorite was in Northern Ireland. It's great to learn that Irish space travel is definitely on the cards and that we need to book flights to Antarctica if we fancy collecting meteorites for fun. To end today's episode, I thought I'd share a fascinating fact with you all on today's theme of meteorites. The largest known meteorite on the planet is the Hoba meteorite. It weighs around 60 tonnes, which is about nine times as heavy as an elephant. I like to judge how heavy things are in terms of how they compare to elephants. Or it's equivalent to three quarters of the weight of the space shuttle. It's sitting right where it landed over 80,000 years ago in Namibia and Africa. You can actually go and visit it. Has anyone seen it? Let us know. Coming up in the next episode, we hear all about the relationship between elements and colours. We learn about artists who have copyrighted colours, what makes a good piece of art, and the science of seeing colour. Thank you for listening to Elementary, my dear, with me, Emer Maguire. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. Also, I would really love if you could take the time to leave us a review. Reviews help other like-minded people discover our podcast. Elementary, my dear, is created by Emer Maguire and National Museums Northern Ireland. You can also follow me on Facebook at Emer Maguire, on Twitter at Emer M Official and on Instagram at Emer Maguire Official. 
For further information, you can check out National Museums Northern Ireland at nmni.com.